0: We'll get into the show in a moment, but first, I've got Jamar Valentine on the line. He is the taproom general manager at Noda Brewing in Charlotte, North Carolina. And today, we're talking about Arrived, which is a sponsor of the program. Jamar tells us about some of the challenges Noda was having that Arrived helped solve.
1: Well, certainly in the taproom before Arrived, uh, the data was so challenging. Uh, The tracking of the data was one of the big ones, you know, and anyone that has worked in management of any sort from fields all over, understands the idea that you can't manage what you can't measure. Uh, and without quick access to a lot of data, uh, you know, we were certainly held behind. It certainly slowed us down a bit, not just uh, how the data was tracked, but even how the data was presented uh, being able to have access to digitally make adjustments very quickly without even being present in the tap room, I could be out in the lake somewhere and then make an adjustment as necessitated, or uh, even pull up checks uh, and send a guest a copy of a receipt uh, before hopping on an airplane if need be. Uh, so you know, the convenience factor has certainly increased. The ability to pull up data uh, long-term, short-term, it's been fantastic.
0: We're excited to have Arrived as a sponsor of the Beer Edge podcast. And Jamar Valentine of Noda Brewing will be back with us at the bottom of the program. But in the interim, I'd invite folks to check out Arrived's website at arrive.com for more information on how it can help your business. That's Arrived with a Y. -Y A-R-R-Y-V-E-D dot com. The best brewmasters are obsessed with creating a high-quality, consistent product. That means reducing mash viscosity for better wort separation, and increasing brew house efficiency. Ultraflow Max from Novazymes helps you achieve both. It's time to brew with enzymes. Increase your brew house efficiency and achieve faster filtration today with Ultraflow Max. Order a free sample today at www.brewingwithenzymes.com slash beer edge. Anna and I have known each other for years. Well, in the sort of way that two people on Twitter who have never actually met in person can. We traded messages, likes, and retweets. She's a talented writer and photographer who possesses a great eye for detail, while not losing focus on the story. She's someone whose work I've followed for a long time. Her career is a melange of multimedia endeavors. After focusing on audio and video editing, she graduated with a degree in film, She didn't plan on becoming a journalist, but her background skills set her up perfectly for the new, coming age of reporting and social media. Emma started her career working at the Austin American Statesman newspaper in Texas after college. Living, working, and drinking in Austin, Emma had a front-row seat for the nascent cocktail scene growing in that city. She reported on all things drinks there, shooting photos and video to accompany her articles years before this would become a regular practice in the industry. Emma then moved to Chicago, where she worked as a freelance writer, and it's where she began to focus a little bit more on beer. She then got a job with Imbibe as the digital content editor, where she remains to this day. Emma is responsible for everything you see on Imbibe's website. She runs the editorial calendar, helps select and write stories, shoots photos, sources and curates recipes for their publication. She's also the author of several books, including Mezcal, The History, Craft, and Cocktails of the World's Ultimate Artisanal Spirit, which was nominated for a James Beard Award in 2018. Her latest book is a collaboration with co-author Julia Momose of Kumiko in Chicago, and it's called The Way of the Cocktail, Japanese Traditions, Techniques, and Recipes, and the book will be released next week. We don't talk a lot about beer in this episode, though there is some. We mainly talk about booze, about how little I understand and appreciate Mezcal, the beauty and art of Japanese bar culture, how much we both miss travel, and whether the RTD and NA spirits trends have any legs. We also talk a lot about the business of journalism in the modern age. Emma offers advice on how to take better photos of your drinks. And we talk about how to maintain a healthy work-life balance and the importance of re-energizing your creativity in the face of the burnout that so many of us are facing. We start this week by talking about the state of alcohol journalism and how her employer, Imbibe Magazine, has managed to succeed where so many others have tripped up and how the romance of the printed page endures. Here's my conversation with writer, photographer, and author Emma Janssen. Imbibe is one of those you know, lasting stalwart brands at this point that has managed yeah. to, to bridge both the digital gap, but also, you know, maintains a, you know, a vibrant print presence.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It, there's nothing, um, there's nothing nicer than having that magazine show up yeah. and, and, you know, you can sit on the couch and flip through it and, and not have to be glued to your phone. Like we are, you know, I mean, I am all day, every right. day for work. So,
0: <laughs> and in your work as digital editor, what does that entail?
2: yeah so um so as digital editor, I um, I am responsible for pretty much everything you see on the website. So I manage our editorial calendar um, kind of deciding you know what's gonna go up and when. Um, and right now we don't um, we don't have freelancers for the website. so all the content that you're gonna see up there, all the stories um, are either, um coming over from the print edition like we do a select number of articles per issue or things that i've written or um that my colleagues have Mm -hmm. written um so it's a little bit of that it's it's a lot of recipe sourcing it's a lot of um photography sourcing and editing um and um and again you know i also like i shoot i'll shoot photos for recipes every once in a while and um Yeah. And then I also, um, I also populate our uh, Twitter and Facebook feeds um, at the moment. So it's, it's, it's a little bit of everything. And then I also do sit in on all the print meetings and I help, um, you know, I give my opinions about, should we run this story or that story? Which issue should we do it in? And every once in a while I'll also help out, you know, with stuff in print. So a couple years ago I think it was right before the pandemic hit we had this large package on agave spirits um which i, I kind of took point on and um which was uh, a lot of fun because i do love i do love working um in print it's just you know it's it's a little bit different than mm-hmm. writing for the website so um i do like i like that mix uh a lot yeah
0: and you have a background, as you noted in visual arts you know video editing, we talked about how that's just such a huge benefit now. and you know how you know visual and written reporting used to be very separate beats. What is sort of the advice that you can give, either to you know, journalists or even just novices, to improve their, you know, photographic work? You know, folks, and I will have some show notes here to link up, you know, to, to Emma's work both for Imbibe and uh, just on her own Instagram. And you know, your work is always, you know, visually very attractive and just it's it's eye catching and it, it clearly shows a level of expertise that it goes far beyond, you know, anything that. I or or many others can do. So, what advice do you have for folks who are looking to just improve, you know, especially their drinks photography?
2: Wow, you really made me sound awesome. Thank you. <laughs> 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 I'm flattered. Um, yeah, you know, it it it's great right now because there are so many resources, um, it, not just resources, but but access to the technology, right? Mm-hmm. Um, y- you, one of the photographers that I really love in the food and drink space, and one that um, you know, I think I learned the most from just by studying her work early on. Uh, her name is uh, Penny De Los Santos, and I haven't um, actually. She used to be Texas-based. I don't know if she is anymore. Um, but she, she said this thing that that really changed a game for me a long time ago, and that was. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what camera you're using. The thing about getting good photos is working on the way that you see things, right? Mm -hmm. So the way that you look at your subject and, and then the way that you train yourself, things like composition and, uh, how to work with light and things of that nature. And so the cool thing is I do shoot a lot on my iPhone, um, I went to uh, Japan a couple years ago, and um, I shot almost entirely on my iPhone, and I was really happy with the the way a lot of those turned out. Um, But yeah, she's fabulous, and um, she did a creative live class a few years ago, and now I can't remember when this was, but um, I can send you the link for that. Um, It was called The Principles of Food Photography, Mm. and it was... um, largely about food but there were so many things I mean the thing about drink photography I think is you have to learn the medium first right and then especially with food there are so many lessons that you can take from those kinds of things and apply them to cocktails um the other photographer who I love and I learned like I I really studied his work and learned so much about drinks photography was Daniel Krieger um he was based in New York and Um, He did shoot a lot of of drinks and cocktails and things. And and so um, he's another really good one to look at. He also did a video series um, that I watched and I took a lot away from. I'll have to dig that up and, and send it to you as well.
0: Yeah, I, I ask these questions largely for my own self. My Instagram yeah. is pitiful, and my photos are not great. And as someone who is, you know, we're attempting to sort of expand editorial out. And and it's it's not really the days anymore where you can just reach out to the brewery or the, you know, the source itself uh, to just say, hey, you know, send us some photos and, and call yeah. it a day. You really need to be engaged in ways that... That you never really had to, and I think it, I think it's interesting yeah. because it also teaches you know reporters who are maybe more focused on what somebody is saying or making sure you're taking proper notes or documenting things to actually, as you said, like you know change the way you look, just change the way you view things to open mm-hmm. open you know sort of in this case almost the aperture of, of your of your observational skills to just see everything else, and I think that probably also you know informs and improves your writing.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, it's just, you know, photography, if if you look at it as just a different way of storytelling, I think that's helpful too. So like, instead of, you know, here's a picture of what I'm drinking right now. It's like, okay, well, the way that you can take that a step further is by saying, okay, what story can I tell about this drink? So now instead of maybe just like focusing on the drink and that's all you see, you pull back from that and you look to see what's around you, right? So if you're in a bar... Um you know, maybe you bring in you, you make it so that the drink is framed within the larger scope of the room, and what's the atmosphere in that room, right? and so now you've added this layer of meaning onto that mm-hmm. drink, and you've and then you know of course, with captions, you can fill in details and stuff, but it is just another way of storytelling, and I think um when you're thinking in that way and then you're also thinking about the words you can you can really paint a full picture and like. And flush out, like, new meanings within that story by paying attention to both, right? I think, I, like, I love that stuff. I'm absolutely fascinated by the way that those juxtapositions can, like, create new um, takeaways for people who are reading it for the first time.
0: You noted earlier that you had spent some time in Japan, and and this is the transition to you're the author of several books, including the James Beard nominated uh, book on mezcal, you know, and you've obviously spent a lot of time, you know, even during this pandemic, prepping prepping new ones. Uh, you know, I am someone who is very peripherally a cocktail person. You know, I, I enjoy reading about spirits, cocktails, technique, and generally just about any type of alcohol. But you have an upcoming book, you know, the Way of the Cocktail: Japanese Traditions, Techniques, and Recipes, that I have been fascinated with since I heard it was coming out. Because Japanese cocktail culture is something that, you know, I, as someone again peripherally involved in all of this, he heard, you know, casually mentioned. It's often with respect to you know a particular type of bar tool or a glass or mm-hmm. even the famous ice ball. You know what? Yeah. You know, how did this project come to be? Because it's also your first co-authoring experience.
2: It is. Yeah. So Mezcal is my first book and that, um, and that was just me. And I did the writing and the photography for that. And then, um, it was two years ago. So 2019, um, Julia Momose, who is the owner of Kumiko in Chicago, um, reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got this book deal with Clarkson Potter and I'm looking for someone to help tell this story. And are you interested? And of course I was, um, I've known Julia for years through my work with him um, you know, featuring her cocktail recipes on the website. And, um, I actually have one of her recipes in the mezcal book as well. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like the, the roots of how that came to be. Um,
0: yeah. And, so when you're in, in Japan and I have spent, you know, 3 weeks in Japan maybe about a decade ago and that was, you know, largely focused on on the beer scene there and just trying to see, you know, how it compared to the US. You know, what was your experience going to, you know, the cocktail bars in in in, in around Tokyo and and through the rest of Japan and how did that inform your understanding of kind of, you know, global cocktail culture?
2: Yeah. Oh, it was It was so wonderful. I, that is one of the uh, the most interesting and immersive trips I think I've like reporting trips that I've ever done. Um, I was there for almost two weeks, I think, and um, went to. Oh my goodness! I I mean, three four bars a night, mm-hmm. um, just packed it in, um, in in Tokyo and Osaka and Kyoto and uh, Fukuoka. We went down to the south and visited some distilleries um, down at the very southern tip of the southernmost island, and um, it was it's just incredible. It, you know, the I think what is so interesting about Japanese cocktail culture is how it is this like it is this holistic thing Mm -hmm. where it's not just about what are you going to mix together to make a delicious drink it's about the entire process and not just that like finished product so you know the bartender's they make a commitment to work in this industry. They spend a decade being an apprentice, learning from a master bartender, you know, perfecting that art, spending years like learning the craft before they even pick up a jigger and start mixing things. Um, And, and even then, like it goes deeper than that too, because the bartenders, you know, they make very specific decisions about what they're going to use in the drink because they have a respect for the craftsmanship of the distiller who made that gin or that whiskey or the farmer who grew that perfect like piece of produce that they're going to put in that cocktail. So it's, or, or in also like you said, the tools, right? Like there's a craftsmanship to making the tools, um, which is respected by the bartender, which is going to inform how they're going to use that tool. So it's this really like, this is web of, Things that are all woven together to create this really beautiful, and also like really precise craft, and I think that is so different than what we're kind of used to here in the states, mm-hmm. right? Which is there's a bar for everything, and you kind of just you know you can you can pop into a bar for a quick cocktail, and um, it, it really is like you know a lot of the time the emphasis I think is on the drink itself and not necessarily always about, and you know, there are exceptions to this, of course, but like um, that I think is something that's so interesting about Japanese cocktail culture um, is how it is about, it is about every little thing and how every little thing works with every other thing to create this thing that's bigger than any of its individual components
0: and i think that's that's really interesting cuz in my travels around the world i've you know as someone who is very interested in cocktails though certainly not you know particularly knowledgeable about anything and also cannot make very simple cocktails to save my life you know I, <laughs> it, it, the technique is always it always seems so important and when i've spent you know time abroad whether it's in you know in france or or in germany or spain and italy you know places that sort of nom- nominally have you know, their own cocktail cultures, they seem oftentimes to be a little bit derivative or a little bit influenced by American cocktail culture in, in some of the mm-hmm. ways you're talking about, whereas this seems, I think it's this and both the Mezcal book in, in talking about sort of Mexican drinks and spirits culture seems so distinctive. They seem like such beautiful areas uh, on which to uh, to report and and to photograph. So I think it, I'm really looking forward to to this particular book just to see, you know, how that Japanese cocktail culture and, 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 and what you're talking about is is differentiated from the U.S.
2: Thanks. Yeah, you know, and it's funny too because something that I didn't really realize going into that book um, is is the uh, the fact that so much like so much of what Japanese cocktail culture is today started with an American like an understanding of cocktail culture in America and then it was just kind of filtered through this cultural lens Mm -hmm. um and and adopted by this country and then transformed into something that I think is uniquely their own so um like you said like not every cocktail culture around the world does that you know I think a lot of places are like okay well this is um how it's done and this is so we're going to do it that way and you know maybe we'll use our our local gin Mm -hmm. or whatever but it's not so specific to their culture so more likely
0: more likely you might end up with you know if you're looking you just inferior products say you know you if you're looking at bourbon or whiskey and you're using jack daniels or jim beam if you're in a lot of these places because it's the best that you know they're able to get and so it's it trying to it's almost trying to recreate American cocktail culture, but just with, you know, maybe maybe oftentimes just not not the right ingredients as opposed to making it their own or utilizing mm-hmm. you know, local ingredients.
2: Yeah, I think that's definitely the case sometimes for sure.
0: Uh, one of the, and this is perhaps a geeky question. And it's one that I, you know, obviously I've not seen the book yet, so I don't know how much is covered in there, but I've spent, you know, a lot of years covering or just watching from afar and marveling at, at someone like Camper English's ice experiments. So I'm just, I'm just curious, like what, you know, is there a, a particular role that ice plays in, in Japanese cocktail culture? Uh, you know, in, in whether or not it's clear ice or the, you know, the ice ball is, is almost, I don't know know if that's the most obvious version of, of you know even if it is you know even if that's even attributable to Japan. But that's what you often hear about is the sort of the Japanese ice ball. But just watching what Camper has done over the years, it just is, looks fascinating. So I'm just curious if there was any any sections of you know, any experience with you know, how the Japanese cocktail culture treats ice.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and Camper, man, Camper's ice experiments are so fun.
0: <laughs> yes, they, they really are. I've recreated them many, many different times and trying to, and now I just have a, you know, pandemic, you know, has caused me to buy a, you know, a, a chest freezer for the basement. So now I'm eyeing that to yes. maybe make things a little bit easier because trying to put that cooler in, in your in your fridge when you've got other, yeah. you're in your freezer when you have other food, not easy. So I'm looking forward to trying to make some better ice, but it's fascinating.
2: Yeah yeah it is and 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 so in in the book we put um we do have a section on ice and it's actually in the tools and techniques chapter Mm. um because it it very much is um i think viewed as a tool right so quality is definitely part of that um you know the crystal clear blocks of ice made with like good quality water um because if it's not Um, then, you know, if it's, if it's frozen in a different way, um, where it becomes cloudy, that can mean that like, there are unwanted flavors, Mm -hmm. you know, that might be in there or there's air in there and, and all of those things are going to affect the way that the ice dilutes and chills your cocktail. And so in, in Japan, they, they, they work to kind of understand each, you know, shape of ice and and how it dilutes and how it chills, um, in order to make sure that you know they're they're creating this cocktail for you that is is going to um, taste good over the course of its whole life, um, and and also that it is beautiful because I, I, the aesthetics do matter too. So um, y- you know Julia told me so many wonderful stories about some of her favorite bars and how. You know, when she would go to them, they would remember the glassware that she loved from her last visit because that's important. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, it is important the way that the ice looks in the glass, because that is just one more thing that's going to elevate your experience of it. Right. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the, the whole ice thing is. Um, really fascinating. And of course, from there, you know, through, in the book, we go through all of the different other you know, ancillary tools like ice saws and picks and mm-hmm. knives and um, all, ice that, tongs all that fun and, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it, I just yeah, I learned so much um, from Julia and and from watching these bartenders in Japan. Um, I think um, the, the book is full of wonderful stories like that.
0: Well, I'm definitely, I'm definitely looking forward to that one. Um, but it just, it, it's sort of during, you know, quarantine and COVID and everything, this, you know, just this conversation about travel and experiencing, you know, drink culture around the world is, is certainly making me you know nostalgic <laughs> for, for the times to get out there, but you know, for we'll you, yeah I, yeah, I can't wait to, well, we'll see what happens here. But, uh, focusing uh just sort of the moment like what for you, you know, what for you makes a great bar you know what is it that you're you're attracted to what are the spaces you know where are the spaces or what types of spaces are you most comfortable in or are you wanting to come back to because you know what you're describing here sounds sounds heavenly it sounds like stuff something mm. i want to go back to but for someone who has spent also a fair amount of time in bars what what works for you
2: mm, that's a good question um you know, I think what I – there's a couple of things, right? So I think what I love the most about bars is is the kind of – one thing is the sheer diversity, right? So I I do think that there there is a kind of bar for every time and place, right? Mm. Sometimes you want to go to the dive bar. Sometimes you want to go to the aviary, right, the super fancy cocktail right. bar. Um, but for me, I think what makes a bar really memorable um, is – it's actually the same thing that I feel like I look for in the spirits that I drink and also the stories that I want to write. And that is how do, they, how do they capture like a sense of place, right? So like what makes a bar unique to its city? Mm-hmm. I, love, I love those bars that you go into and you're like, wow, this, this place could really only exist yeah. here. Yes. You know, and it speaks to this culture and it speaks to the way people here drink. And so if you're coming in from out of town, you go there and you learn something about that place. Right. Um, You know, clearly things like hospitality are really important. Um, You know, uh, clearly, I think quality of the actual drinks is really important. Um, But that is really what makes something is what's going to make a bar memorable for me.
0: Yeah, that that I think that captures it. I think that's again getting nostalgic and wist, <laughs> wistful for these days. Um, yeah. One of the you know the other obviously the other main book you've you know put out is mezcal, and uh, you know I've heard you interviewed previously about it. But what was it like? You know, just listening to those interviews and and sort of going through it, it just it opens up a whole area. A drinking culture that I was not particularly you know, familiar with. Part of it is that I am, you know, while I love drinking, you know, anything of all, basically of all types, Mezcal for me has actually been one of the more challenging spirits to mm-hmm. handle. I am someone who. You know, my palate can get overwhelmed pretty quickly. I'm I'm well known as a as a resolute logger and hellas drinker. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't like to think I have a, a baby palate, but you know, you know, and I I can drink some smoked beer, but in, in sort of limited measure. But for me, mezcal has taken years, and I'm finally I think turning the corner on it. Um, my wife absolutely adores it and and drinks it whenever she can. For me, it's it's been much more of a challenge. But you know, for you, you've used it as kind of a a compass to help navigate you know, the world and, and, and sort of meet people from different cultures in an instant way of connecting through that, that book. So what is the, what is it about Mescal and and what was the experience like in, in writing that book?
2: Mm. Yeah. And that's funny. You know, I, I don't think that I do, I do think that really coming to understand Mezcal is, it is a process, right? And, and so I don't think you're alone in that. I don't, I, I don't haven't met, that many people who taste it for the first time and they're like, "Oh, I love this!" Right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, there is a learning curve, and I think part of the reason for that is because it is such a diverse spirit. So, and this is also like w- one of the things that I absolutely love about it, and why I think I keep coming back to it and keep coming back to that world um, to learn more about it because it is this endless well of of diversity. So. Um, you know, mezcal is made uh, all across Mexico, right? And um, and has been for, for centuries. So um, every region has different agaves, mm-hmm. right? It all starts with a raw product. But every region and even sometimes, you know, towns, smaller towns within a region um, or within a state uh, are are going to have different, agave, different kinds of agaves. They're going to have different terroir, right? The actual climate, the soil. Um, And then there's also cultural differences and and differences in tradition and customs. Um, You know, even within the same uh, village, you can have um you know like let's use uh Santa Catarina Minas as an example so you're in this small place in Oaxaca and the regional tradition there is to use clay uh pot stills instead of um you know steel or copper and um so that is generally something that people do there but if you have a mezcal from uh you know this producer versus this other producer they could also still taste wildly different from one another. Mm -hmm. So that is, I think, what something that doesn't make it this wonderful, like explosive world of, of um, discovery, Uh, you know, if coming from an outsider's perspective, right. Coming from like Mm -hmm. an American perspective, um, it is so deeply steeped in these traditions. And, and that's what, what makes it really beautiful, um, and interesting. I think that's really what draws me to it.
0: I think I need to redouble my efforts on Mezcal and find, (laughs) find a local bartender. I've I've got one particular friend in mind who can, who seems to be have some expertise in this and have him walk me through, you know, these different types, because I, I'm sort of stereotyping it a little bit as, you know, as almost a singular flavor where it seems from your description, it's so much more varied and and diverse and um, just a product that I feel like you really could kind of get lost in.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure, and it's easy. You know, it's easy to to do that because I think with a lot of spirits, there is kind of there is a flavor profile that you can expect, mm-hmm. right? With whiskey, we know it's distilled from grains, and we know it's it's usually going to be barrel aged. So, you, you know, you're you're going to get that personality, and you can kind of expect it. But yeah, with mezcal, it is it is so much wilder than that. Some of them are going to taste. Um, really deeply earthy, and like you get a lot of the cooked agave flavors. So you're gonna get like sweet potato and honey, mm. and and chocolate, and other ones are very like plant forward, so to speak. So you know, there's there's one that I love that every time I take a sip of it, it reminds me of jalapenos, yeah. and and it's green, right? It's so vibrant and green. And so I think you're you're to your point of of going to you know, going to a bartender that you trust. I mean, that's, that's the wonderful thing about bars that have great agave selections is most of the time, the bartenders, they really do know what they're talking about. And um, they can, they can totally guide you on this path to finding one that you're going to like, you know, whether that's one that's going to be lower proof and kind of softer and less smoky, or if it's one that, you know, is going to come off at more of a quote unquote, cask strength, um, kind of alcohol by volume and, um, you know, have a lot more of a punch and a um, a robust quality. Um, I think I really do think there is a mezcal for everyone. And, you know, I mean, I've converted people like my uh, my in-laws. Who never would have touched the stuff, and now every time we go down there, they have a bottle of Oaxaca, and we open it, and we usually go through it in like the week that we're there. <laughs> um, so yeah, I really do believe there is one for everyone. You just—it's just a matter of like of figuring out what that is and and how to find it.
0: Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna redouble my efforts and refocus during the end of 2021 on yes. on making mezcal a personal project. Yes, so that and, sounds and good.
2: Let me know how it goes. <laughs>
0: Go to Arrive.com to set up a free, customized demo with an Arrive consultant and see how a point of sale can make all the difference in your guest experience, staff efficiency, and bottom line. Chances are a switch to Arrive will save you time, money, and a whole lot of headaches. Arrive.com. That's Arrived with a Y. A R R Y V E D.com. Arrived is the point of service that works for you. There's a lot going on in. In in beverage alcohol, there's a lot going on in the cocktail space, Uh, and one of the you know one of a couple of the things that we we're seeing so much of are you know canned cocktails or RTDs ready to drink Mm -hmm. cocktails, Um, and we're seeing them you know sometimes from brewers putting them out, sometimes from spirits producers. It's it's sort of and we're seeing some growth there and certainly a lot of excitement uh, and then you know getting further afield you have CBDs and seltzers and in this mm-hmm. whole mix of basically canned alcohol beyond just wine and and beer where do you see that going do you see it do you see it growing uh, do you see particular areas that you think are going to work well and are are you are there particular producers you're excited about or do you think is this just something that is more fad or or loses some of the, you know, some of the quality or some of the the flavor that we get from, you know, cocktails that are either made by hand ourselves or, or made for us by, you know, a qualified bartender.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, at first, you know, when the when this RTD canned cocktail thing really started, I was I was just not interested yeah. at all, right? like <laughs> I think for a lot of the reasons um, that we've kind of been talking about, you know, I think, Cocktails are about so much more than just that liquid in that glass. Right. Right. It's about the bar and what kind of music are they playing at the bar? And what like how how does the light come in through that window and hit your glass? And you're talking to the bartender and you're hanging out with other people and and maybe you're learning something new about, you know, this gin from Scandinavia mm-hmm. or or whatever. But it's it's about that experience, right? And so to capture that experience in a can um yeah i don't know right so i was i was very skeptical and also i felt like as we started to get samples at imbibe you you know i try to say i try to say yes to most of them because i I do want to get a sense for that category because like you said i mean explosive growth um over the last just couple of years even um the quality has really improved. Hmm. I think there were a lot of really bad ones out there, yeah. um, and and now it, there are really good ones um, that that I think are worth giving a try. and And I think the pandemic was a big big element in how my perspective shifted because, um, you know, when you're not allowed to go to a bar, and get that experience. Um, that's kind of when, you know, I was like, okay, I, I think I'm, I'm getting it right. There is a place. And now I do think, even though, like I, of course, like I could go to a bar tonight if I wanted to, um, but I think there is a place and a time for for canned cocktails. Uh, you know, at the end of a really long day when I've been, you know writing all day and I don't have any brain power left, right. I, I'm gonna go to the fridge and I'm gonna grab one and I'm gonna like feel good about that if the quality is good. Um, and also, you can turn it into a social thing if you want to, right? Because of the like the portability, um the to-goness of RTDs. Right, right. you know, take a cooler with your friends out to the river or whatever. Um, that's great. Um, some of the ones that I have been that, that stand out, um, recently I tried the new, uh, spritzes from Luxardo, um, the Italian mm-hmm. spritz company, and they were absolutely delightful. I mean, in, I don't, I don't find many canned cocktails that when you drink them they taste like you would mix them yourself Mm -hmm. and those were definitely like that and i was really impressed um i really like um the craft house line by charles sholey he um was a chicago bartender he um was at the aviary and Mm -hmm. the drawing room and um, did the diageo world's class bartender award thing and um those i think are are really lovely they package up, um in in um aluminum but well i don't know i mean most cans are aluminum um they're just like a different shape and size um which i find uh to be nice so there's like two cocktails per can oh. um and the way they do those is they really are better over ice because they kind of formulated it so that when you do put them over ice and dilute them, they're going to hit that like yeah. really nice sweet spot of flavor. Um, another one that came to mind, um, what, which I think is is such a like unusual and interesting kind of anomaly in this space. And also I think has a lot of crossover between audiences. So like cocktail people will like them, but also I think beer and wine people can kind of find something to liken them to and that's um the ones from empirical spirits uh, which is a distillery based out of copenhagen um they started exporting exporting but we get like two of the cans i think at least right now in the states Mm -hmm. and um they're they're not like can cocktails but they're also there's just this really weird hybrid they use um the beet molasses like a spirit made from beet molasses but then they use like a saison yeast and they add ingredients like um uh, gooseberries or you know cherries I can't remember off the top of my head but um and then they like they so the result is this interesting thing it almost tastes kind of like a sour beer at times but the flavors are really bright and beautiful and and they kind of scratch that itch when you're like i don't really know if i want you know a cocktail or um you know a spritz or a glass of like lambrusco or maybe i do want a sour beer but i want it to be a little higher proof or Mm -hmm. with a little bit more body and structure um so those are super cool
0: well, I'm sold on that. That is that yeah. is a description. The description of that last two sentences you just spoke are me, are <laughs> me a lot of the time. I don't know what you nice. know. I don't know what I want out of those, but you know, to find something yeah. that can kind of bridge that gap uh, would be great. One of the other sort of trends that has been kicking around in cocktails for the last couple of years that is sort of beginning to percolate a little bit more to the surface is na or non-alcoholic spirits um Mm -hmm. i I, it's one of those things that i have not i don't have a ton of experience with it but i imagine you might have you know much more than myself is there is there any there there do they have a place are there certain ones you know say a a gin version you know that's that's manufactured to, to taste like that that are better than than perhaps others like a bourbon um what's the you know what's the status of na uh and a spirits
2: mm-hmm. yeah that's a really interesting space to watch too um i think there's definitely i mean i think there is a place for them um especially with this rising tide of um you know accepting the fact that not everybody wants to drink for whatever reason right, right? there are a lot of reasons why someone might not be drinking on a particular night or not drinking at all and i think that the, the industry should be accommodating towards that. And um I think the the NA spirits are um are another one where you know it just seems like you know, seed lip came out and everyone loved it and then things just exploded there mm-hmm. too. And now there are so many. Um I think we're still just kind of we're seeing you know, the beginnings of that becoming a category where there is going to be a lot of quality. Um, Right now, most of the ones I taste, I do not like. Um, However, I think one kind of um, sub trend that I'm seeing within that space are these products that are made by distillers. So there's already this understanding of how to create something Mm -hmm. with backbone, with complexity, something that tastes like it has proof, but with no proof. Right. Um, there's one that I really fell in love with. Um, they sent me a sample earlier this year. I think it was, uh, it's called new London light and it's, it's a non-alcoholic gin um, made from this English uh, company that, that makes gin like really good gin. Um, and uh, it has become a staple in, in my house. You know, there are for the nights that I don't, I want that like really crisp and
0: mm-hmm.
2: botanical, you know, that, that yep. kiss of a gin tonic, but I don't want the gin. Yep. I'll put it in there and I honestly can't tell that it's not gin. Like it, it has the same structure. I think where they fall flat is when there are a lot that just taste like flavored water yeah. and that's not going to hold up with things like citrus. It's not going to hold up with tonic. It's just going to dilute whatever you put with mm. it. And what's the point of that? Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to watch that space get better um, as time goes on, because um, I think there is a place for them.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for that as well. And this is, a, you know, this is has been sort of chock full with good advice, and and I've written down a bunch of names here, so I'm looking forward to getting into to many of these products. Um, awesome. It, over the last few months, uh, you on Twitter, we've had a few interactions, and I and I've sort of been following following your you know, conversations that you've sort of been almost thinking aloud sometimes, which, you know, is actually oftentimes the best type of Twitter in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just about having some you know trouble focusing on projects and, and the need to give space, you know, to creative work. And I thought you you, know, I promoted a smart thread that you had about balancing work and life and, and mental health. And when we, you know, fail to prioritize ourselves, you know, our creative energy can suffer. And I definitely felt that post. Uh, how, you know, how have you learned to sort of re-energize, you know, your, and re, you know, just restart your creativity without burning out, and um, just what has worked for you? Because I, I certainly have felt that over the last, you know, few months to a year. Having yeah. incredible difficulty bringing myself to to write uh, or to edit or to do things that I that I need to be doing, and it just that it just seems so difficult, especially with the lack of travel, the lack of outside connection, mm-hmm. uh, which is fuels at least so much of mine, and I would imagine your your work just having the absence of that and being trapped in sort of the fall, you know, four walls of your home, it's, it's hard to give space to that creative work and, and high and yeah. just re-energize it. So I was just curious to see, you know, where your head's at with that.
2: Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it really is an ongoing struggle Yeah. <laughs> because, um, you know, burnout is so real. So yeah. I mean, referencing that, that thread you were talking about basically, um, you know during the pandemic um i i mean i worked myself to the bone and mm-hmm. and i've been doing this for years right i think especially in an industry like writing i've always felt like i have to say yes to pretty much everything yeah um and i have to do a good job. You're, you know, you're kind of only as good as the last thing that you wrote because, especially Mm. in digital, because then it just, you know, it goes in one year and out the other year. Um, and so, um, but the the pandemic just really like, it, it puts so much into perspective for me because, you know, I had imbibe imbibe my day job and then, Suddenly, I was writing, I was co-authoring this Japanese cocktail book with Julia. I was co-authoring another cocktail book with um, Toby Maloney, who um, was the guy who founded the Violet Hour Mm -hmm. Cocktail Bar in Chicago. Um, That one's coming out next spring. So we're still, like, we're actually wrapping it up now. Um, On top of that, we're in a pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) You know? And the stress that came with that and, um, you know, we're also, like in the middle of this kind of incredible social change that's yeah. happening as well after the George Floyd thing happened. And, uh, you know, not that that was the first thing, but that like kind of, you know, poured fuel on this fire. Sure. Um, and, and I just, I just, I didn't have time to do anything but work. And I, and I, all I did was sit at the computer all day, every day and work. And, and I remember at the time I was like, I'm almost like missing I don't have any time to even let this pandemic sink in at certain points. Yeah. Right. And like, all these things happened. My, my grandmother died. It, it was just like, it was awful. And all I did was work. And so as, as soon as, um, uh, that last book left my plate, uh, like we turned in that manuscript, we turned in the other manuscript. And, um, it was like, February of March of early this year. Right. And so I managed to get a vaccine and um, all of a sudden I was like, okay, I am not going to say yes to anything Mm -hmm. for a while. I need a minute. Right. I need a minute to relax, to rest, to like process everything that's happened. And um, I'm thankful to, it sounds so weird, but like I was so burned out and, and if I hadn't, you know, I could have just kept going. Right. And just saying yes to everything and, and overworking myself. But I was like, no, that's it. I'm taking at least a few months to just have my day job yeah. and not doing it and figure everything else out. Um, and so for me, what ended up happening was, I mean, my husband and I, we left the city. Hmm. Um, my uh, my parents had moved to southwest Michigan um, last uh, fall and um, we came out here for vacation for a week and we brought our cats cause I knew I wanted to stay more than a couple nights. And mm. um, it was, it was so restorative being, just being outside, you know, mm. just being yes. um, outdoors and, and not being on the computer. And when I needed something to do that wasn't work, staying away from social media and staying away from the computer and just, finding like getting back in touch with everything that I used to love to do before I started working myself to death um you know reading novels yeah oh my god like I hadn't (laughs) read a novel in like two years um taking photographs again of things that have nothing to do with drinks right like taking pictures of um plants in the garden like you know it just sounds so stupid but like it it getting back in touch with things that I love to do outside of work and not just letting work consume my life was kind of the first step. Right. And then from there, it just snowballed a little bit. So, um, you know, we planted this enormous garden and like everything you could think of in there, um, flowers and corn and vegetables and, um, and, and finding a way of getting, feeling grounded again, Mm. I think was really important for me. And, and I've heard, you know, a lot of stories like this during the pandemic of people who start, you know, even backyard gardens or, pat, you know, ones on their porches or, um, you know, I mean, grow herbs in your living room. If, yeah. if that's something that speaks to you and, you know, getting back in touch with the whole food chain. So like growing my own food and then sitting down with a cookbook and picking out recipes that I want to cook because I love to cook. And, you know, and, and just kind of like easing into that and doing these really, these things that sound really simple, but I just fallen out of touch with really started to help. And, and I could feel, you know, it just takes time. I think you just have to like, yeah. you have to rest your brain and you have to look outside of, of, of what you're supposed to be doing with your job and making space for that. And that's kind of like for me that really started to manifest in interesting ways. So, I have ideas again, right? Yeah. Like I have I have all these creative projects and so, you know, by like growing a ton of sunflowers and then I've been reading these books about how to arrange flowers and so I'm making these flower arrangements and that in turn is is just working a different part of the brain. Mm. Um, and that is sparking creativity in other places that might not seem natural. And that, I think, is really wonderful.
0: One of the things that I, I feel like, and we have, we have not talked about it, but I think might have been important for you as well, uh, is, is music and, and its mm-hmm. connection to that. And we've seen, you know, I've seen it at least manifest in your work a little bit through, you know, in vibes, you know, happy hour playlists. Uh, can you tell mm. me, you know, about what 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 was that about?
2: Mm. What, um you mean like um how did
0: that? How did, come? yeah? So how how did that come about? And and how does that? You know, I, we're starting to see some you know brewers and other folks starting to put out you know, just sort of music and 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 mm. playlists, especially just kind of just trying to reconnect with you know. With something that provides them some sort of creative, you know, spark as well. But I've just mm-hmm. been noticing that, that um, Imbibe has been kind of doing these these happy hour playlists.
2: Yeah, you know, that's another thing. I think, like for me personally, it just stimulates a different part of the brain, and I think that is is really great. It's it's just so creative in a different way, and I think that's that's a cool thing about creativity too. Is I think a lot of a lot of people say, well, you know, you're, you're kind of either creative or you're not or you know, there's only one way to cultivate your creativity. And for me, it's 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 making sure that I'm incorporating all these different mediums. So, right. It's the visual, the written, the auditory. Um, when you work all those different parts of the brain that that I don't know, I feel like it makes your brain really happy, Um but with the, with the Imbibe, with the Spotify series there, um, that was something that I was doing organically mm-hmm. on my own for years was was when I was in a bar, um, you know, and I thought that they had a very specific sound or, you know, you can, I feel like you can tell when it's intentional, right? You can tell when you're going mm-hmm. in somewhere right. and they're putting on Pandora or yep. Top 50 or they're actually putting thought into it mm-hmm. and, like, how does that music create the – an experience right how does it how does it resonate with people on on a different like emotional level um and how does that influence the way that they're experiencing this bar and that drink and that social moment um so i have all these how all these playlists and i actually like i have a bunch that aren't even up on imbibe um just throughout the years um of me sitting at the bar and literally shazamming
1: yeah
2: <laughs> um but I I love it as a series because it's just another way of telling a story about a place, right? So um, there are, and it's been wonderful getting to talk to um, the people who are creating these playlists and um, hearing about their inspirations, um, and 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 then listening to them and seeing how that you know that intention has manifested out like in the real world in this creative way. Um, I'm trying to think of like. Some ones that I've really loved.
0: Yeah, I asked because uh, recently I've, I've been spending a, you know some time once a week or so at a local brewery that has a great beer garden here called Notch Brewing Company. They make fantastic lager beer. Mm. But the owner, uh, Chris Loring, whose you know, brewer, has been in the business for a very long time, has a very distinct point of view and and that's both in in visual and certainly as it comes to beer uh, and product but also in musical taste and so when I when I step into his space as I did last Friday night the playlist and it you know it's yeah, you know, I had to ask: Is this is this indeed Pandora? Is this playlist? And he was almost offended by the question. You know, just yeah. how dare you think that I would put on a Pandora station? Yeah. Everything about this place is intentional. Why would it also not be down to what mm. people you know are are listening to? And you feel that when you go into a place that the music does not match the scene, and it is very jarring. Whether it's you know you know you have heavy metal in a in a low-lit cocktail bar and if you're trying right. to create a vibe like that that's that's certainly interesting and I've yeah. experienced that but also just a lot of times you just have you know 50s music in a place or something and you're just like this this doesn't make sense no one's really thought about this but for him it's a lot of 70s and 80s you know british punk music uh and it's <laughs> it's not blaring but every yeah. song in, in it, it'll be a lot of music like wilco or uncle tupelo or th- you know very th- much things that if you understand him as an individual makes perfect sense and so i think it's fascinating to use you know sort of these audio cues uh mm-hmm. as as a lens for better understanding the place where you're 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 visiting
2: yeah yeah, I love that, and I just I am so drawn to people who take that level mm-hmm. of detail into what they do, right? Because I feel like I I just put a painstaking amount of energy into making sure that the things that I do are intention mm-hmm. are are done with intent, right? Um, and so, yeah, I just I love nothing more than than discovering um, you know a simpatico spirit in in a bar or. Um, or even just, you know, another person, I think that's just, it's wonderful when it, um, when it goes like that.
0: Emma, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. This interview has been a long time coming. We've known each other online for a long time, and I'm hopeful that at some point here in the not too distant future, we'll be able to get together maybe over a bitter Mai Tai, maybe over some Mezcal, and uh, I can hopefully dazzle you with my very limited knowledge on that subject.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That would be wonderful. I would,
0: I would love that. Thanks for listening to the Beer Edge podcast. My partner John Hall and I work hard to bring you fresh and insightful content related to the ever-changing world of craft beer. We're passionate about beer and independent journalism. If you're interested in supporting Beer Edge, visit our website, BeerEdge.com, which is updated regularly with new content, interviews, and articles. Please also consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your episodes. You can also subscribe to the Beer Edge newsletter on our website. Is there anyone you think that we should be talking to? Please drop us a line at beeredge.com with your thoughts. Thanks for your support. We're back with Jamar Valentine of Nota Brewing, who is talking with us about how Arrived has helped his brewery.
1: You know, I've used a number of POS systems over the last decade and a half, and a number of them offer many great features that Arrives does, uh, but from the ability to operate in different locations uh, very quickly, from the ability to track data and adjust quickly, uh, and their fast response times. Uh, that doesn't even speak to the level of care and personal connection that everyone in the arrived company seems to approach their work. Uh, the individuals with whom I've interacted have truly shown that they cared about finding great solutions to any problems, uh, whether they're short- term, long term, small picture or big picture. You know, with arrived having the capabilities for me to quickly see information. From the very first day that we switched over to Arrived to today and to see trends, again, continuing to push uh, the solutions.
0: When you envision the ideal experience for your brewery guests, your focus is on superb service and delicious beer. Point of sale is just the transactional formality to their visit. What you need is a point of service. Arrived is the only mobile, flexible, customizable point of service system designed specifically for craft breweries. It adapts and grows with you on-premise and online. Your staff will love the simplicity, your managers will love the world-class support team, and your guests will love the seamless ordering experience and probably order more beer because of it. Save time, money, and headaches with Arrived. The best brewmasters are obsessed with creating a high-quality, consistent product. That means reducing mash viscosity for better wort separation and increasing brew house efficiency. UltraFlow Max from Novazymes helps you achieve both. It's time to brew with enzymes, increase your brew house efficiency, and achieve faster filtration today with UltraFlow Max. Order a free sample today at wwwbrewingwithenzymescom Edge.